Good morning, family. I encourage you to take your Bibles and open to the book of Genesis and chapter 20 as we continue through the, our series looking at the life of Abraham. I periodically haul trailers around. Boat trailer, wave runner trailer, utility trailers, the chapel trailer. Been doing that for, for so long. Over the last 30 years, I've always had a vehicle that is equipped to pull trailers. In the old days, it was a big van. Now it's my envoy. So I've always had a, a car that's equipped with a trailer hitch. Related to that, I have a really bad habit that one or two of you might identify with. I frequently get in a hurry and I tend to start moving around faster than my brain. And so I will be scurrying about on some urgent matter and go around the car, around the back of the car and behind my vehicle. Now my mind knows that there's a trailer hitch there. But remember, my body is moving ahead of my mind. And so also keep in mind that the height of the average trailer hitch is exactly the midpoint of a man's shin. And as I'm coming around, moving quickly and not thinking, my shin and the trailer hitch get into a conflict of space and time. And the trailer hitch always seems to win. And uh, then the pastor bites his tongue to avoid saying things that pastors shouldn't say. And this has happened so many times. And it hurts so badly that there is absolutely no excuse for it ever happening again. But it does. As soon as I say that, it will probably happen this week. (laughs) It's been a while. Our lesson today from Abraham's life, though, is kind of like that. Genesis chapter 20. Now Abraham moved on from there. He's been up by the Oaks of Mamre for some, well, long time, 20 years or more. He moves on from there to the region of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. So he saddles up the horses, donkeys, camels, all the entourage, there's probably at least a thousand, maybe a couple of thousand folks in his household. And they move. Apparently, last week we ended with the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And this happens apparently within days or at the most a few weeks of that morning that after the angels had left to go down to Sodom. He got up early and he goes over to the place where he and the Lord had met and talked as they looked down at Sodom and Gomorrah. And he goes over and the Scripture says that he saw the smoke of the city going up into the heavens like the smoke, black, thick black smoke from a great furnace. He may have seen the whole thing for it says that he went out early in the morning to go over. And if you recall, as as the angels took Lot and his family, it was as the sun was was dawning that they were taking them out of the city and they waited for them to get to the the little town before the judgment came. So Abraham may have watched the whole destruction. It doesn't say why, 
whether he was just kind of spooked and thought, you know, I'm leaving the neighborhood. Or whether it was the fallout from the stuff was making it hard for him to graze his cattle. Don't know. But for whatever reason, they pack up and they move. They head out, it says, down to the Negev. That's down to the south of Hebron where, where they were living by the Oaks of Mamre. And goes down and then, and then he goes up to Gerar. It says then he uh, went to and stayed for a while in Gerar. Approximately 125 miles in this traveling. He stays in Gerar, verse 2, and there Abram said of his wife, Sarah, she is my sister. And then Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. If we were watching a miniseries on Abraham's life on TV, and you come to this chapter, you would think, wait a minute. I've seen this, I've seen this one before. It's a rerun. Only to discover it's not a rerun. It's just, and the words, the immortal words of the theologian Yogi Berra, it's just deja vu all over again. It takes us all the way back to chapter 12, to the, the whole incident in Egypt 25 years before this where the line then was the same line as it is here. Oh, she's just my sister. It was a bad idea then. It was wrong then. It was deception then. And it almost cost Abram and Sarai their marriage then and their lives. And here we go again. 25 years later. In this day, in this time, a king is sovereign in his area and he has the right to take any single woman who pleases him into his harem. Whether Abimelech, King Abimelech there in Gerar, whether he was attracted and desired Sarah because she was still a good looker at age 90. And I'm not going there with that subject again. I learned my lesson 25 years ago back in chapter 12. I'm sure that even... As Sarah was really good looking then, she is still good looking now. Or whether it's because he's simply desiring, as many kings do, to build up alliances and power and keep control by marrying into the family of, of wealth and other royalty. So whether he is saying, I need to create an alliance with Abram, so I'm going to take this, his sister because this rich, powerful man has moved into my area. Whatever his reasoning, text doesn't say, but the Scripture says that King Abimelech thinks that she's single, and so he takes her into his harem. And we're shaking our head in stunned amazement. Not that the king did this, but that Abraham will fall into this sin of deception again, of being a deceiver Especially since it worked so well last time, 25 years ago. Well, twice. On top of that, twice in recent weeks, Abraham, and no more than a month before this, chapter 17, verse 21, chapter 18, verse 10, God has confirmed the promise again to Abraham. You will have an heir. A son. And God, very, God got very specific in chapter 17 and in verse 18. It's going to be through Sarah. 
Finally, after 25 years of waiting, the promised son is going to come to Abraham and Sarah and it will be in a year's time. God told them both in chapter 17 and chapter 18, within a year. But now, at this most critical time, after waiting so, so long, the stopwatch has started <laughs> one year and you'll have a baby. The time of conception is, you know, the countdown is ticking sometime in the next few months. Just as that happens, the whole promise is jeopardized as Sarah gets taken into Abimelech's harem because of this foolish plan of deception. Now before we get too frustrated with Abraham, we need to remember that it's always easy to be a critic when you're not playing in the game. It's a whole lot easier to criticize when you're in the sidelines, you know, or, or when you're in the stands, or when you're sitting in your lazy boy at home watching in TV. We all like to play, you know, Sunday afternoon quarterback from there. We all like to play cardinal manager and second guess everything, but it's a whole lot different when you're on the field. We get that. So we shouldn't be too hard on Abram. We haven't walked in his sandals. Before we're too hard on Abraham, we also need to take a little look in the mirror. See, is there a trailer hitch that you run into on a regular basis? A sin that you stumble over, that you slip upon on a, you know, repeatedly it's happened before and it's in your life, you go, it's like deja vu all over again. <laughs> I've done this before. I like the old word used to describe that kind of a sin. It, it, people would talk about them as besetting sins. You go look it up in the dictionary. The word beset means to to trouble or to threaten persistently. Sins that trouble you, that threaten you persistently, they are continual danger. You just tend to fall on that one. Most of us have at least one, maybe several. What is it for you? Is it lying? Is it deceit or gossip or laziness or gluttony or envy or jealousy or greed? Maybe it's addiction to some substance. Maybe it's anger or lust. But most of us have some besetting sin. And so as we come to this, to this section and this this account in Abraham's life, while it's upsetting to see this great man of the faith who has come through so much and who's grown so much to stumble and fall over this, you know, to us, such an obviously stupid thing to do. All we have to do is look in the mirror and realize I do that. And so what I find in this passage is comfort. Comfort because the real focus in this chapter isn't Abraham's sin. It is big. The real focus of this chapter is God's grace. And we'll see that. This chapter is full of God's grace. God's grace shows up 
After Abraham's failure, God, God's grace protects the promise. Their failure here jeopardizes the promise, but God protects. God speaks to Abimelech. Look at verse 3. But God came to Abimelech in a dream one night and He said to him, You are as good as dead. Or I like the way the ESV and some of the other translations say it. You're a dead man. (laughs) God's not very subtle here. You're a dead man. You're as good as dead because of the woman you have taken. She is a married woman. Now, Abimelech had not gone near her, so he said, Lord, will you destroy an innocent nation? Did he not say to me, she's my sister? And did she not also say, he is my brother? I've done this with a clear conscience and clean hands. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know you did this with a clear conscience, and so I have kept you from sinning against me. That is why I did not let you touch her. Now return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you and you will live. But if you do not return her, you may be sure that you and all yours will die. Wow. Fortunately, God intervenes. He protects Sarah. He even protects Abimelech. He protects the son that's going to come despite Abraham and Sarah's faithlessness and failure. God's grace. God's grace, though, continues to show up. Early the next morning, Abimelech gets up. No joking. He probably never went back to sleep. Probably wakes up. He summons all of his officials, verse 8. When he told them all that had happened, they were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham in and said, What have you done to us? How have I wronged you that you brought such great guilt upon me and my kingdom? You have done things to me that ought not or should not be done. And Abimelech asked Abraham, What was your reason for doing this? What in the world were you thinking? God's grace confronts Abraham through Abimelech. God won't let, you see, He won't let Abraham get away with this sin. May I say, if you're a child of God, God won't let you continue in sin indefinitely either. The Scripture says that. Hebrews chapter 12 says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. And do not lose heart when He rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the Son, those He loves, and He punishes everyone He accepts as a son. That's not saying that God loves to punish. It's not saying He loves to get the belt out and and whip His kids. Just like as parents, we don't like that. We don't like to have to punish our children. But if we love our children, we discipline them. Love demands it. It's just like our kids. If we love them, we don't let them get away with stuff. We can't if we love them. If there's a kid in my house who's running amok, getting away with murder, he's not my kid because I love my kid. Now, they're all grown. I only have grandkids. 
But you know what? They love their kids. And they don't let their kids get away with stuff because they love them. They discipline them. The only kid we're going to let run loose in my house and run amok is your kid. Because it's your job to discipline them because you love them as a parent. God is a good parent and He doesn't let Abraham get away with it. Just as in Egypt with Pharaoh, God here has the pagan king confront the man of God and expose the sin. That's embarrassing. It's embarrassing when an Egyptian points out your sin. It's embarrassing when a Philistine points out your sin. What were you thinking? These things ought not to be done. But what's more embarrassing than having this pagan king point out to Abraham that he's done wrong is to read Abraham's response. See, what I would expect from Abraham is something like, Abimelech, you're so right. I'm so wrong. I'm so foolish and stupid. You know, this reminds me, you know, 25 years ago, I was back in Egypt and kind of did the same thing. And, you know, it didn't work out good there. The Pharaoh there took her into his harem too. And God had to get us out of that. And, yeah, it's so stupid. Stupid, you know. Oh, my sin. Oh, there we go. Did it again. I'm sorry. That's what I'd expect, wouldn't you, out of the godly man? You know what Abraham does? Read his responses. He makes excuses. <laughs> Any of us who are parents know how this goes. <laughs> he makes excuses. The underlying problem With Abraham, we find out when we read this is we find out that the underlying problem is fear. He's afraid that he's going to lose his life. Somebody's going to kill him to get to his wife. And this has been a fear that has been dogging him ever since he left home back in Ur. Because remember, he married up. And she's beautiful and he's just sure somebody's going to kill him. That fear is rooted in a faulty understanding of God. See, he either doubts God's power to take care of him. And when they left Ur and when they left Haran and they went to places they didn't know, and there's ungodly people there, that maybe somehow God isn't able to protect him. God can handle it when there's godly people around, but you you get around those Egyptians and it's not safe. A faulty view of God. Or it's God is fully capable, but God isn't fully good and fully loving. And while God could help me and could care for me, He might not. He might, maybe He just is too busy. He's got other folks to be concerned about. Or maybe, you know, God today doesn't like me and <laughs> I'm just not sure I can trust Him. Either God isn't fully Sovereign or God isn't fully good. Faulty understanding of God that 
Abraham has been carrying around in his heart ever since the beginning while he can trust God with most things. When it comes to this one thing, saying, I'm not sure I can trust God. May I say those two misunderstandings, those two false views of God are at the root of much, if not most, even if not all, of the sin in our own life. We doubt God's power, but we doubt His goodness. That's what got us into this whole sin mess to begin with. Back in the garden, when Satan goes to Eve and says, God didn't really say that, did He? God really doesn't want the best for you, does He? He's holding out. See, the goodness of God. There's the problem. But instead of seeing that, what and seeing problem for what it is, Abram starts making excuses. And as I look at his excuses, I'm going to see three chains that bind us to habitual sin. But let's read what he says first. Here's his excuses. Verse 11, Abraham replied, I said to myself, there is surely no fear of God in this place and they'll kill me because of my wife. Besides, she really is my sister, the daughter of my father, though not of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God had me wander from my father's household, I said to her, this is how you can show your love to me. Everywhere we go, say of me, he is my brother. Three excuses. They point out three things that if we allow these things to stick in our life, they become chains that keep those sins just dragging along and following along with us where we trip over them. First thing is Abraham starts making excuses. He blames others. Abraham basically first blames his circumstances. I had to do this. I didn't really have a choice. I was coming to this place and there's no fear of God here, guys. I mean, look at you. Uh, And... I had to. It's not my fault. Mom's dead. We've heard this all the time, don't we? Not my fault. <laughs> and then you go down to the, the verse, I think it's 13, 11, 12, 13. Yeah, 13, where he says, matter of fact, back in the beginning when God made me leave my father's household, he <laughs> it's God's fault. God threw me out in a place where it wasn't safe. I, I had no other choice. I had to, we had to do this. He's not taking responsibility for his own actions. It's not my fault. And you've never done that before, have you? (laughs) Secondly, the second chain here that holds us to to this lie and this sin, he says, besides, she really is my sister. (laughs) See, it wasn't really a lie. (laughs) It was the truth. She's my half-sister. Yeah, she's my wife, but she's my sister, so it's not a lie. It's just not everything you needed to know so God doesn't wipe you out. (laughs) Rationalization. How we like to use this one, too. It's okay. We refuse to call it what it is. It's sin. If we look back to the Egypt incident, go back 25 years, chapter 12, and we see what happens, the whole mess there, God delivers them out by His grace. They're headed back to Canaan. 
they get to Canaan. Abraham builds an altar and there it says he calls upon the name of the Lord. Abraham gets back into walking with God, following God, but there's one thing that's missing from the whole account that you won't find back in chapter 12. Nowhere does Abraham say, I sinned. Nowhere does he say, I did wrong. You see, when we refuse to take responsibility for our actions, we blame others. When we refuse to even say, I sinned, we, we just are carrying that with us because we've never dealt with it. And we're just setting ourselves up to trip over it again and again. The Scripture says that if we confess our sins, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to purify or to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, God wants to help you and me ditch these besetting sins, these habitual sins. He wants to help clean us up and get this stuff out of our life. But it begins... 1 John 1, nine. if we confess our sins. It's missing here in Abraham's experience thus far. There's a third thing that Abraham does here. He's, verse 13, where he says, when I left my, my father's household, when God made me do it, I left my father's household, I said to my wife, hey, this is how you show your love for me. Wherever we go, this is what you do. May I say, I think the point is, he's saying, it's not a big deal. This has been our modus operandi for the last 25 years. It's company policy. It's what we do. It's not a big deal. I don't know why you're so upset about it. We've been doing this for 25 years. Now you want to make a big deal about it? <laughs> Nobody else ever complained. Well, Pharaoh, but what's that? Yeah. <laughs> Abraham seems oblivious to the effects of this deception. But they're big. And may I say, sin is always a big deal. Sometimes we just want to minimize it. We want to say it's not a big deal, but it's always a big deal. First and foremost, because sin is always against God. There's a little phrase back up in verse 6, and you probably missed it because we read through it quickly. But God is talking to King Abimelech. And King Abimelech is saying, Hey, I, I, I didn't do... What? I, I didn't know. And God says, Yeah, that's why I... Did you see it? Verse 6. I kept you from sinning... Notice that. Against me. Now see, if we were writing this story, we would have put it this way. I kept you from sinning against Sarah. In our minds, Sarah would be the first victim in this story. We don't want to minimize that she's a victim here. You know, she's being pawned around and tossed around like property, but the real victim in this would be God. If he committed adultery with Sarah, God is the first victim. See, we, have, we don't often think that God is always the victim in sin. It is offensive to him. It hurts him. That's why David, after David commits murder and adultery, 
In Psalm 51, in his confession, he says, against you and you only I have sinned. It's not that it wasn't a sin against Bathsheba and it wasn't a sin against Uriah. It was, but it's saying the sin against God is so big that the sin against them, which in our eyes is huge, is almost inconsequential. See, we we get big on the effects down here on our level, but we often miss the fact it's huge here. Abram's little lie is big to God. God is a God of truth. God is a God of His Word. And when His people lie, it's a big deal. That's why it's in the list of sins God hates. I hate a lying tongue. Big deal. Not only does His sin affect God, His sin obviously affects people. The, the promise was put into jeopardy. I mean, what, what would have happened if Abimelech had gone in and had sexual relations with Sarah and had gotten her pregnant? What would that have done to the whole program? Well, God stopped it. But Abraham wasn't thinking. He didn't fight for the promise, but God did. The trauma for Sarah isn't mentioned here, but we can only imagine what she went through. The effects on Abraham and Sarah's marriage aren't mentioned here, but we can only imagine how that affected their relationship, the insecurity and the tension that was there. What is mentioned is Abimelech and others almost died. What is mentioned is that Abimelech and his whole household are affected. The problem with Abraham and the problem often with us is we have a low view of sin, of its offense to others and its devastating potential to us. And it's offense to God. We think it's no big deal. And that will keep us chained to habitual sin if we have a low view of it. The more we remember the high cost of sin, the more we need to be, the more we will be determined to see it rooted out of our life. Billy Sunday was a professional ball player in the late 1800s. Around, I think he was 1889, he was marvelously converted as a drunk. Uh, He became a believer in Jesus Christ at a rescue mission in Chicago. Over the years, as he grew in faith, he ended up becoming one of the most well-known evangelists of the early 20th century, the early 1900s. We could use some of his attitude towards sin. He said, listen, I'm against sin. I'll kick it as long as I've got a foot. I'll fight it as long as I've got a fist. I'll butt it as long as I've got a head. And I'll bite it as long as I've got a tooth. And when I'm old and fistless and footless and toothless, I'll gum it till I go home to glory and it goes home to perdition. (laughs) Is that your attitude towards sin? I confess so much of the time it's not mine, but it ought to be. And we will tend to continue to slam our shin into the trailer hitch of sin until we have this attitude towards it. Lastly, God's grace. The last four verses of this chapter, we see God's grace as Abraham is blessed. He is blessed by Abimelech. And I won't read, but chapter, verses 14, 15, and 16, they are showered, he and Sarah, they are showered with wealth. Abimelech gives great gifts, extravagant gifts of of animals and servants and silver. They are given freedom, unlike when when Pharaoh chased them out of Egypt because of that. Abimelech says, hey guys, you know what? You're welcome to stay here. Anywhere you want to go, you're welcome here. Stay. They have freedom to live. 
Sarah is returned and her honor is publicly vindicated. But more than the material blessings and the blessings they got from Abimelech, there's a blessing here from God Himself. We see it in verse 17. Then Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech, his wife, and the slave girls so they could have children again. For the Lord had closed up every womb in Abimelech's household because of Abraham's wife, Sarah. Say, how is Abraham blessed there? I I missed it. We have to go back up to verse 7 where he says he's a prophet. Abraham is a prophet. He will pray for you and you will live. If we go all the way back, way back to Ur where God first calls Abraham and then in Haran where God calls Abraham and then when he gets to Canaan and God affirms His promises to Abraham, God always says that I will bless you and you will be a blessing. He tells Abraham his mission, his purpose. You are to go and be a blessing. You are to bless other people. When Abraham went to Egypt, he became a curse, not a blessing. As Abraham has come here, he has become a curse, not a blessing. These folks are, are they're about to die and there's sickness and the, the wombs are closed. Things aren't happening here. And God says, Abimelech, the only way you're going to get out of this is if Abraham prays for you. What God does in His grace is this fallen man who has tripped and fallen on his face and embarrassed himself and embarrassed God, by the way, in all of this, God says, Abraham, you've got a job. You're still my man. You need to pray for these folks. Can God work through a liar? Yeah. And He did. And Abraham prays for this family and ironically and in God's humor, Abraham has to pray that God will open up the wombs. And by the way, most of the commentators and most of the, even the Jewish rabbis think that what happened here, there was a sickness that that not only closed up the wombs, but created sexual dysfunction in all the men in in this household. So nothing was happening. And and, uh, Abraham has to pray that all of this gets fixed so they can have children. The one thing that Abraham's been waiting for for 25 years that he just jeopardized right here, he has to pray that God will give to these pagan folks. Kids. And when he prays for it, It happens. (laughs) And by the way, Abraham and Sarah don't have the child of promise until after Abraham prays this for these folks. God is teaching him lessons here. The lesson for us is God's grace. The message here is that for all of us who blow it, there is restoration. There's forgiveness. And God wants to continue. He wants to get us back up off of our face, back onto the, into the proverbial saddle <laughs> and serving Him again. Have you stumbled? Have you fallen? There's grace. Some people are afraid to talk about grace like that because if we talk like that, people are going to think, well, well, it doesn't matter how I live because I can live however I want and God is going to be gracious to me. But may I say, if you and I really experience God's grace, when we really embrace it, there is, 
That doesn't move us to go out and want to sin more. It does the exact opposite. It wants us to go and love and follow the One who is so gracious and good to us. Jesus said that. Luke chapter 7, verse 47. You may remember the story. There was that woman who was a great sinner. Jesus is having dinner in the house of some religious leaders. And this woman comes in off the street and she starts crying at Jesus' feet. And her tears are so many, she uses them to wash His feet. And she's wiping His feet with her hair. And the guys over here are all abuzz, these religious leaders. If He was really a prophet, He would know what this woman is like and He wouldn't let this woman touch Him. And Jesus turns and says, The one who is forgiven much loves much. See, forgiveness doesn't make you want to run away from God. Forgiveness makes you want to run to Him. The Apostle Paul said the same thing in Romans uh, chapter 2 where he talks about, he says, the kindness of the Lord is meant to lead you to repentance. My prayer is that God's grace will embrace us today. He will drive us to Him and that He as well will give us victory over those trailer hitches in our life. You may be here this morning and you need to know this. It's God's grace that reaches and saves us from our sin at the very beginning. I don't know if you have a relationship with God, but it begins in understanding His grace and that you need it. Many years ago, there was a drunken paymaster in the Russian army who uh, nervously pondered how he had been squandering the company funds. There was an inspection coming the next day and he realized he would be found out. He began on a piece of paper just writing down all of his debts. And when he finished, it was such a long and such a staggering amount that he realized it was hopeless and he scrawled on the paper, such a debt, who can pay? Then he got his revolver and loaded it with the intention of killing himself. But in his drunken condition, he ended up passing out before he could do it. Shortly thereafter, in the middle of the night, Nicholas, the Tsar of Russia, came into the camp. Seeing the light on in the paymaster's tent, he, he went and went through the doorway and entered and saw the paymaster passed out on the desk, reeking of alcohol. He saw the loaded gun and read the note. At first he was going to call the guards and have him hauled away to face judgment and then he had a second thought. When the paymaster woke up the next morning, he looked and there in front of him was a pile of money and the note and under his question, who can pay, was written the name Nicholas. See, that's a picture of what salvation is. Such a debt of sin, we can't pay it. But God loved us so much. John 3.16 says that He sent His one and only Son so that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have eternal life. God's grace 
is what saves us. And if you have never trusted Him, He invites you this morning to believe in Him and find grace and mercy and forgiveness. Let's pray. Father, there's some this morning, maybe you needed to hear that because they have never placed their trust in Jesus. They need to know there's forgiveness of sin. There are many of us here this morning who needed to hear this message because while we are believers in Christ, we are folks like Abraham. We have tripped over sin and maybe this morning we are right in the middle of it. It may be gossip. It may be greed. It may be immorality. It may be lust. It may be... Who knows? Father, we... We're sitting here this morning thinking, I'm too far gone. (laughs) I've tripped up one too many times. We needed to hear that there's grace, that you call us back. There may be some who have been struggling with besetting sins and they've been wondering if there's any way out. They needed to hear this morning. They need to break these chains and come to you and in your grace And with your power, you will help them break these chains. For there is freedom. There is deliverance in your grace and in your power. So with that, Lord, we ask that you would do a work in us. That we might not fail to be a witness in our community as Abraham messed up with Abimelech and in Gerar. Rather, we would be shining lights of your grace to people who need to hear. In Jesus' name we ask.